You're listening to the Midweek Edition of the 1208 Podcast. All right, welcome back. Today we are going to talk about the serpent. Uh, I apologize that today's podcast is a bit behind. Your midweek edition is kind of like end of the week edition this week. <laughs> eh, sorry about that. Uh, two things. I, I was at Pastor Spouse Retreat with our conference this week, which was a really cool time. Uh, I was excited to be able to lead worship uh, for that, and uh, it was just really cool to see pastors all across your your conference just really engaging God and praying and worshiping uh and, and asking him for help with all of these new church plants that we've got going in. Uh, there's there's just several uh, popping up all over the place, including Maisha's, who uh, is planting a church here in, in Jackson, a recovery church that uh, uh, if you are interested in helping her out with, you can actually give online. Somebody is helping match donations right now. So contact Maisha and uh, ask how you can give, and that will help her uh, be able to uh, plant this more securely uh, sometime, I think, in May is what she's aiming for. So uh, you can check that out. Uh, but it was cool to worship with everyone. And then the other thing that kept me busy this week was I, I finally wrapped up. Finally. Okay. I guess I, I worked on this project pretty quick. So finally is maybe not a good word. But I wrapped up a, a new book called Kaiju of Biblical Proportions, uh, which is a book about... Um, the beast, the kaiju, the monsters, you know, like Godzilla, Gamera, Mothra. You've got these kaiju out uh, in Japanese literature. Well, I tried to uh, borrow from Japanese culture to talk about the kaiju, which is giant, strange creatures uh, in, in the Bible. There's Leviathan, Rahab, and Behemoth. So I really just focused on those three characters, wrote a chapter on each. It's a very short book. Uh but I did some interesting deep. There's there's surprising amount of deep research out there, <laughs> on on such strange beings. So uh, I was able to do that, and then I married this research with some artistic progression. So that just went up on Amazon today. I'm still waiting on approval of the physical copy, which should pop up any second. That'll be the coolest way to read it because it's got, uh, um, it, it's again, it's trying to be artistic. So it's got pictures that kind of. On almost every single page, there's some kind of picture. So uh, I'm excited to get a copy of that myself so I can see how it turned out. Um, but yeah, otherwise, Kindle popped up there. So uh, interesting reason to bring those up. Those beasts, Leviathan, Rahab, and Behemoth, actually get linked to Satan in some interesting ways, which is what we're going to talk about today. Mm, you tuned in to talk about Satan, did you? Uh, because that's where we're at in Genesis 3. So one verse is all we're going to really look at today, which is Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. All right, so that right there, of course, has always been a confusing statement for many of us. We read it and we're like, okay, so what is the serpent? Is it a literal snake? Is it just like, and and because when it gets cursed later, it loses its legs, is it therefore like a a like uh, a a more evolved snake with legs that got de-evolved by God as a curse? What what are we dealing with here, with this creature, or uh, is it Satan? Is it just Satan taking on the form of a snake? 
Uh, and if it is a snake, why is it talking? Did snakes used to be able to talk back then and they lost that ability after uh, the fall or something? Or did Satan manifest as a snake or overtake the snake? There's just so many different ways that we could read this or we've been told to read it. Or is it all just metaphor? You know, if you don't want any fanciful ideas in, in this at all, is it all just a story and it doesn't even matter? Well, uh, we're going to try to take a closer look at some of that today and, and show you what the people of the time might have expected uh, the snake to be, especially working with uh, Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. Still my favorite book of all time. Uh, it, uh, there's an easier version of it to read called Supernatural if The Unseen Realm is too much uh, to handle. Uh, but uh, yeah, this we're going to shed some light using some of his stuff, and then we're going to move on through a chapter I wrote in The Rush and the Rest about uh, uh, trying to define Satan, and uh, we'll just kind of go through this for a little bit here. So let's start, of course, with the snake in the Garden of Eden. Uh, one of your firmest understandings that this snake is, in fact, Satan, because Satan's actually not written much about in the Old Testament. Uh, the place where his name comes up the most is in Job, right? Uh, but we don't even actually know that the Satan in Job is actually Satan. It could be, um, but Satan in Hebrew actually just means like the accuser. So in Hebrew, it's possible that you're not dealing with like Satan as like a person or as a as a being, if you will. It's possible in Job you're dealing with Satan as uh, just an accuser, a spiritual accuser, some spiritual being that comes before God. And starts to call Job out on all this stuff. Uh, the way you can tell that in the Old Testament, every time you see the word Satan, the way you can tell that that's not always meaning Satan, the being as we know as Satan, is simply by the fact that the angel of the Lord, which is one of God's like primary messengers in the Bible, gets accused, uh, not accused, gets called an accuser, gets called Satan at one point. The angel of the Lord is a Satan to someone, which just means that the angel of the Lord accused someone. Is the angel of the Lord Satan? Absolutely not, right? So anyways, I bring that up to say in the Old Testament, when you see the word Satan, it's usually a defining characteristic of a person. It's not necessarily uh, that spiritual being Satan, okay? So I hope that is uh, uh, helpful. Uh, but when we get to the New Testament, we see that they have created uh, this understanding that there is this being called Satan. They work off Old Testament passages to help paint the picture of who they believe Satan to be. And one of the passages that they connect straight to Satan is that of the serpent. We only need to go to Revelation, uh, Revelation 12, where we see uh, this dragon chasing down this woman. And as this dragon is fighting, it's defeated, and there's no longer any place for him in heaven. And we see in 12.9, Revelation 12.9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So right here, we, we don't see, uh, um, we don't see, like, future fight going on right here. We see a fight that's already happened. And in this fight, we see John, who wrote Revelation, saying straight up, 
that ancient serpent, which should take all of our minds back to Eden, because everybody knows the story of the serpent, of, of the reason that uh, we got tricked and kicked out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise. Right here you see John saying that ancient serpent, it's the devil, it's Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So while you don't have Genesis saying, hey, this being is Satan, you do have the later commentators in the Holy Inspired Scriptures saying, hey, that being was Satan. So that right there at least helps us start the conversation to realize this is not just a snake, right? It's not just any old given snake. So the next question would be, okay, so did Satan manifest inside of a snake or did Satan kind of become a snake or what are we doing with this here? All right, this takes us into Hebrew. Here's where we especially need to work with uh, some of Michael Heiser's writings. Uh, the word for snake in Hebrew is neshash. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, but uh, this word typically gets translated as snake. Okay, There's other kinds of uh, Hebrew words for snakes, uh, and some of them are more talking about venomous snakes. Uh, I think petham is maybe a venomous snake, but neshash is is uh, the word that gets used quite often, I think somewhere around 30 times in the Old Testament for, for serpent, okay? So we have this nashash, this serpent, in the Garden of Eden. And here's uh, uh, three things that we can point out about this word. Here's where Heiser thinks that there's a triple entendre. You know, sometimes like if a person uses one word, they mean it like two different ways, or if they can, they mean it three different ways. Like that's just very clever writing. Um, Heiser would say that that's the kind of clever writing going on right here in the garden. So the nashash is supposed to be a triple entendre, meaning three things. First thing is this. Uh, nashash is spelled N-C-H-S-H. Okay, so in Hebrew, there's no vowels, which puts on the translator. The translators have to figure out how they're going to translate words and what vowels they're going to kind of interject there. Um, so some of the, if you were to put vowels into it, you could uh, not just translate translate it nashash, but noshesh. And the word noshesh means the diviner or the diviner. So divination, that's like uh, when you're communicating with the supernatural realm, you're trying to, like, you know, you think of psychics, right? They're diviners. They're trying to uh, get in touch with the supernatural realm to figure out your future. With us knowing that, like, this being is Satan, that that just makes sense to us very easily, right? In fact, it almost makes more sense than the serpent. Like, Adam and Eve came in contact with a, a diviner. They came in contact with a supernatural being who had supernatural information for them to to contemplate. Hey, you guys should eat from this tree, and here's the reasons why. Supernatural wisdom I'm I'm giving you. So it, it could be translated Nashesh, which would be uh or it could be translated Nashash, right? Which is serpent. And Heiser believes that that is one of the ways that it, we're supposed to read this. Nashash, it's a serpent. But at the same time, this serpent is a diviner. It has supernatural information. It has omens and all that kind of stuff, right? It's an oracle. And then on top of that, uh, it also could uh, be relating to uh, copper or bronze. 
Now, I know this seems like a stretch right here, um, but uh, 1 Chronicles 4, 4.12 talks about Tehenaya, or Tehenah. I don't say people's names well in the Bible. <laughs> he's the father of Ur-Nashash. Uh, so he's a city, uh, he's a founder of a city known as uh, Nashash, and this city is a city of copper and bronze. Okay, that, that would be the way to kind of uh, translate the phrase about this uh, this city of Nashash. So, Heiser says that not only is it a diviner, not only is it a serpent, but it also could have a connection to things like bronze and copper. And I know that means nothing to us right now, but if you were to look into ancient culture, you would see that they expected shiny things to, to more or less uh, be connected to spiritual beings. Spiritual beings glowed. They were shiny. They spent their time around shiny things. And so right here, uh, he sees, Heiser sees the possibility that maybe copper and bronze as another implication of uh, uh, the nashash of this word, we could be seeing like the description of a supernatural being. It's, it's shiny. So in one word, Heiser again implies triple entendre. The serpent is A, a serpent, is B, a supernatural being because it's shiny, and C, a diviner, it gives out supernatural information. Now, uh, it uh, also is kind of noticeable, you know, uh, Eve isn't freaked out by this talking serpent, Um and now that we're thinking of it as less of a serpent and more like a description of a supernatural being, um, we're like, well, why is Eve not freaked out by, by this supernatural being walking in the Garden of Eden? And this goes back to conversations we've already had about how the Garden of Eden is God's temple, right? Uh, the rest of the world is not Eden. Adam and Eve are to be fruitful, multiply, and send their children out into Eden to help the whole world start to look like Eden. So, if Eden is God's temple, and therefore you expect kind of like to find God in his supernatural presence there, uh, you would also expect in ancient time to ex find to run into other kind of supernatural beings um, that work for God or are around God. It's God's space, right? And uh, while we don't know necessarily why we would find Satan here in this context, it at least seems that Eve isn't freaked out by coming in contact with a supernatural being in God's presence. Okay, so I uh, hope that catches us up to speed. Now, a lot of people would say, okay, but Jamin, um, you know, we, we see the serpent, the curse on this serpent is that it now has to uh, it has to wander around on the ground, right? Well, let's just read it. Uh, Genesis three fourteen. Uh, God, the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life." So yeah, again. You know, the Bible's kind of phrasing it like it is a serpent, but at the same time, we see this understanding that it is a supernatural being. So I think you see the Bible kind of possibly tangenting two directions. Like, as a serpent, here's kind of your folklore, your backstory as to why you have no legs. But uh, from a supernatural perspective, 
also what is being communicated to Satan as a being here is the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, It's kind of like this divine casting down, which is what we saw in Revelation, Satan being cast out of heaven. Uh, But this casting down of Satan from the heavens to the ground. He is now put on the earth, even under the earth. Uh, He is at the lowest point he could be. He tried to get as high as he could and overthrow God, but now he is all the way at the bottom. Uh, The dust he shall eat all the days of his life. So uh, he is now, yeah, he's, uh, this can be, the words used here can be related to like the earth, but also like kind of under the earth, shield, death, the the realm of the dead. Satan is now cast as low as possible. So we do see ways to uh, understand the curse, not just on a snake, but on a divine being, uh, which kind of shows you again, this, this kind of double entendre thing that's, that's going on here. Okay, so that kind of talks about the serpent in the garden, um, but we have a lot of questions, right? Like, where did this serpent come from? Where did Satan come from? Why did God make him? So on and so forth. And, oh man, we could go on for this forever, but recognize this, okay? Uh, God doesn't make uh, intentional, he doesn't create like intentional evil or enemies in the same way, and we've already learned this, in the same way that we are to image God on the earth. Supernatural beings are to image God in the heavenlies. In the same way that we can sin, supernatural beings can sin as well. And I know that sounds weird, but check this out. In Job 4, 18, we actually have God, uh, well, we have one of Job's friends say, even in his servants, he puts no trust. He's talking about God. Even God puts no trust in his servants and his angels he charges with error. So here you see, like, Job had this understanding that the angels were not perfect. They sinned. They messed up. Job 15, 15 reiterates the same thing. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. Holy ones in the Bible was another word for spiritual beings, for angels. And you see that used uh, uh, especially later in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's time. So, here you have this understanding like angels can sin, they can fall, they can not be trusted, and they can mess up. So with all that being said, um, God does not just like create Satan for the sake of having a cosmic enemy. Like that's that's counter to what God wants. Satan, however, is a leader, a orig- the original rebel, if you will, of leaving God, and now he's trying to get supernatural beings to follow him, which is why we see him and his angels being cast out in Revelation. But he also is trying to get human beings to follow him. He's trying to mess us up and torture us because he knows that God would be hurt by this. He knows that uh, us chasing after the false gods, the other supernatural beings like Satan, well, that would take away from God's glory and, and what he wants. For God is love, and God wants all of humanity to experience his love and to be inside of his love and his kingdom. So, all that being said, God did not create Satan, did not create a serpent for the sake of having a divine enemy. Okay, Satan has the ability to fall just as we have the ability to fall. And God allows us to make those kinds of free will decisions 
both in the natural realm and the supernatural realm. Okay, so uh, we're curious, though, as to Satan's backstory. You know, we want to know, like, what happened before God made the earth? What what happened before uh, in the spiritual world and all, all that kind of stuff? The Bible, especially in the Old Testament, doesn't have a lot to say about that. But... Um, it does get into it just enough for us to have some backstory. And it happens two specific times uh, through the prophets, okay? So the prophets, um, they go to call out kings of, of their times, uh, to give them a prophetic word about the ways in which they've sinned. And here's what's very strange. Both Ezekiel and Isaiah, while they're prophesying towards a king about what they've done wrong, their prophecy suddenly takes this like weird turn in which you one minute they're talking about that king and their sin, but the next minute you know they're not talking about the king anymore because what they're talking about sounds like a divine being. It sounds like a spiritual being, and the king is is not that. So as you look at these, you realize that one of the ways in which uh, one of the strategies they used to prophesy was to make comparisons between this king and some kind of spiritual rebel who messed everything up, the ultimate bad guy. They make comparisons between the two as a way of giving a prophetic word. So I know that's kind of hard to explain. Let's read it and you'll see this. So the first is Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. bit long, um, but I want to use it to kind of show you what I'm talking about here. So in this, Ezekiel's told to go tell the king of Tyre um, uh, a prophetic word about his pride. And here's what he ends up saying. He, he gives him a word, and then as he's going through the word, he says this, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Okay, so let's pause real quick. We know we're not talking about the king of Tyre anymore, right? Because we just said in the Garden of God. Uh, And already a lot of people, when they read this passage, they're thinking we're talking about Adam or Eve. Uh, But that doesn't line up here yet either. We We don't see Adam as being described as perfect in beauty, full of wisdom or a signet of perfection. And we also don't see him as wearing all these precious stones. But is this ringing a bell here? We're talking about shiny stones, which again would bring to our mind the idea that we're talking about a divine being, a spiritual being. And what was one of the other beings that uh, uh, we saw in Eden? Well, we saw Satan there at some point, right? Uh, He at least shows up to try to throw over humanity. So, with that being said, it makes sense that we would be talking about Satan rather than Adam and Eve, and we definitely know we're not talking about the king of Tyre because he was not in the Garden of Eden. All right, let's continue. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. 
So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. All right, so right there we see a lot of... uh, Well, I I believe that we're looking at Satan's backstory. This is one of the first times in the Bible that we get this backstory, and it's through a prophet who uh, suddenly God has given this word about this rebel. And this is one of the passages that I think New Testament authors are going to be like, yeah, you know, that, that right there, that sounds like a supernatural being who's against us. And they start to kind of create this theology. Uh, well, not even theology. They start to create this cosmic world fair view of this Satan-like being. Okay, So Satan, if we were to take this about Satan... He was full of perfection, perfect in beauty. He's surrounded by shiny stuff. Uh, He was an anointed guardian cherub. One of the easiest ways to see that this is not about Adam and Eve because they were not cherubs. I mean, cherubs are supernatural composite creatures mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. They're often associated with God's presence and classified among the angels. They're commonly depicted with the body of a lion, the wings of a bird, and a face of a human. Now, does that sound like Adam and Eve? No, I don't think so. So, again, we see, like, Satan was this being. He wasn't created to be evil. Uh, but then suddenly violence in it is, enters into his, his midst, which, again, it's not something that we see with Adam and Eve. Uh, and then uh, things just are, they go downhill from there. In fact, he's casted to the ground, right? That sounds like the serpent. Uh, he's put on the ground. His legs are removed. He's now a part of of the underworld and of the earth uh, rather than the heavens where uh, he once dwelled. So here you see one story in Ezekiel about Satan. Uh, And uh, we see Isaiah later pick up on the same kind of idea in which he talks about uh, uh, a being as well. In fact, it's funny. Again, this is the the way in which they would prophesy sometimes, they would just kind of tangent from the person they're prophesying against to talk to them about Satan, the the, the original rebel, and how they're like the original rebel. So uh, let's go ahead and fast forward to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, where we see uh, him start, where we see Isaiah begin to make reference um, to Satan. Here's what he says. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This right here should catch our attention because uh, in previous podcasts, we've already talked about how stars were understood in ancient culture to be divine beings, right? That's why uh, when 
when you see God create the earth, he doesn't make the sun and the moon because those are, in ancient culture, those are, are littered with uh, uh, the idea of divine beings, of false gods, okay? So instead of saying he made the sun, he made the moon, says he made the greater light and the lesser light. They, they don't even want to give the name of the the sun and the moon because they know people will think that suddenly other gods are entering into the picture. So right here, Isaiah has painted a picture for us of supernatural beings being pictured as stars, okay? So Satan was in heaven, but now he's fallen from heaven. He was uh, the day star, the son of dawn, but that star, this bright star, suddenly decided it wanted to, to be even higher than the other stars. In fact, it wanted to overthrow God. He wanted to, to take his throne, set his throne on high, to take uh, the mount of assembly. He wanted to reign over all the other stars, all the other gods, all the other spiritual beings, and be in charge of them. Which, let's just pause for a moment and talk about the, the great pride right here. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? To, to know that God, Yahweh, is the one true God, the one God who made all spiritual beings, that made all humanity, that made all of creation. It's all his. He has all power, can see all things. He's omnipotent. He's om omnipresent. And yet here, one of his created beings is like, I'm going to overthrow him. Like, the pride is ridiculous. It's just unbelievable that he could think that he could could outdo God and overthrow him and take control of all the other stars, all the other spiritual beings, and all of the other physical beings. It's just it's unbelievable to me. But here we have uh, one star trying to overthrow the other stars. One spiritual being trying to overthrow the ultimate spiritual being, which is God, right? The created trying to overthrow the creator. Uh, here's, here's reasons that you can especially see this being as Satan is because, oh, day star, son of dawn is what Satan is called. And if you translate that into Latin, you get the word Lucifer. If you ever wondered, like, where did the name Lucifer come from? It's because during the time of of Latin, <laughs> uh, people started seeing this verse as a reference to Satan. Okay, so they would pull it out. Uh, they would say, "O day star, son of dawn, that is O Lucifer, that Satan character. This is where he's located in the Old Testament." So tradition dictates that this passage about Lucifer, about the day star, son of dawn is a passage about Satan. And we would expect that uh, uh, New Testament writers were feeling the same way. They saw the Satan of the Garden of Eden. Um, they saw uh, the, uh, the supernatural being that was um, perfect at one point and then fell apart because of his pride and violence in, in Ezekiel. And then this, this supernatural being that tried to overthrow God in Isaiah they would look at all of that, and using stuff like that, they would start to create this, this uh, cosmic enemy of sorts by the time New Testament comes around. So a lot of people think that Satan isn't real. Uh, in fact, I think it's like, uh, I've got it right here, four out of ten Christians strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being, 
but a symbol of evil. So a lot of people out there think like Satan's just this myth. Four out of ten, 40 percent of Christians think that Satan's just a myth. But here we have the Bible working with itself, working with the prophets, working with the the messages communicated from Yahweh himself to start to paint a picture and understand that Satan is not just this this story. It's this real being who is trying to mess us up. And I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, if you make Satan out to be nothing, then you're you're going to have a hard time doing this Christianity thing, right? If you don't understand who your enemy is, if you don't understand that there is an enemy out there, then how are you going to fight him? <laughs> how, you, how are you going to break through all of his traps? I mean, he... He is as incognito as can be if you don't think that he exists. So this right here is painting this picture of Satan. Everything we looked at so far is the Old Testament. It does move into the New Testament where uh, we see him mentioned a whole lot more. Uh, He's actually mentioned as the ruler of this world to some extent. Uh, And you see this with Jesus. Satan goes up to Jesus and says, To you I will give all authority and their glory. And it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. That right there, that's Luke 4, 5 through 7. Satan goes up to Jesus and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, all the authority that's been invested to me over them because I'm the ruler of this world and of the underworld. Uh, Well, I'll give it all to you if you worship me. Uh, But Jesus doesn't worship him. In fact, what Jesus does is overthrow Satan on the cross. So, uh, in doing that, now we have all the creatures on the earth worshiping God, all the creatures above the earth worshiping God, but we also have all the creatures under the earth. That is, Satan and all these other demons and everyone who follows Satan, they all worship God too. Now, here's a question. If Jesus would have accepted Satan's temptation there to to worship Satan in order to get authority of the earth, would he also have gotten uh, the uh, authority of, or would would he also have, uh, yeah, overthrown the underworld? That's just a question to to think about. Now, every being in all existence, both above the earth and under the earth, will worship Jesus because of what he's done. He's He's thrown over um, everybody. He He's usurped all power. It is all his. And he's done that on the cross. We often look at the cross as just like this place where uh, Jesus forgave us of, of our sins. But there's actually this huge picture being drawn throughout the Bible of the fact that this was cosmic warfare. That on the cross, he, he overthrew Satan. He overthrew all demonic entities. He is now the king of the entire universe and of all the planet, of the underworld, above the world, everything. It's it's all his. So the cross is much more than just like, uh, yeah, I've been forgiven of my sins. It's actually like a, Jesus is king of all. And uh, once you get caught up in, in that understanding, the, the cross will start to speak volumes to you beyond just like this uh, simple heartfelt, uh, you know, uh, I feel forgiven, to this understanding of mission. Okay, so Jesus is king of the world now, and now he is calling us to bring the kingdom of heaven and install it on the earth. And when he comes back, he'll install it in the rest and fullness. But until then, 
while Satan has lost, he is still present. He and his workers are still present. And we need to, to fight them to the best of our ability because God wants more people to be saved. He wants more people to enter his kingdom. And Satan is still trying to stop that as much as possible. So go fight Satan and bring in everyone that you can to be saved by Yahweh so that God can establish his kingdom with what he wants, which is his people. Okay. Uh, so right here, we've kind of painted a picture of Satan. Um, it's true, he's not the only spiritual being against God. We have fallen angels. We have uh, demons. Um, we have uh, these kind of things. So uh, we have the principalities and powers, uh, the false gods. So there are like different, uh, in the same way that you have different kind of spiritual beings in the heavenlies like cherubim and seraphim and uh, they have different roles in the the not heavenlies the underlies the darklies uh, in in the underworld there are also kinds of different spiritual beings okay and they have different roles and different levels of power and authority uh, the bible actually paints a very vast picture of all that we don't have time to go that deep into it uh, for that, you'll have to read part four of my book, The Rush and the Rest, or The Unseen Realm, or God at War, uh, Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, or God at War by Greg Boyd. These books will help paint that picture a bit more. Um, but uh, Satan is one of the leaders among all these people. Uh, we don't know for sure if he is like, I mean, he's generally, you know, the worst of the worst. And so, like, all false powers are united with him, if not, like, following him directly as a leader. They're at least all united with him in, like, ideology. They're trying to fight God and overthrow him. Uh, but God, God will win. Psalm 82 says that. God will one day make all the false powers, the spiritual beings, the false gods, they will die like men. And, uh... Yeah, so they lose in the end, and that's what Revelation's all about, right? I mean, you you watch them r try to rise up to power and just get destroyed um, by God's power. So that is kind of the the long story today of what we know about Satan based on the Old Testament and that serpent who was in the garden and everything that we can learn from that. Uh, we're not studying Satan because we want to be interested in him. We're studying Satan because we want to know what the enemy is like, what he's trying to do, what makes him tick. That's what you do about enemies. You learn what they're like so you know how to beat them, so you know how to to win the, the battle that you're fighting them with. So I hope in some way that this, this can help you as you fight that battle. And uh, continue to give you strength. Because we don't follow Satan, but we follow God. We don't follow the demons, the false gods, the principalities and powers of this world. Rather, we follow Jesus Christ who has taken power and authority over all the world. God who is, who was, and who is to come. So, uh, with that being said, that requires us to go on mission every day. Install the kingdom of heaven here and uh, take back uh, what Satan has tried to take control of. All right, so that is the uh, midweek podcast at the end of the week this week. <laughs> Have a good one. We'll catch you in church tomorrow, and uh, we'll we'll talk about all things Matthew-y, because that's where we are in the Bible, the book of Matthew. All right, we'll catch you then.